the scriptures of the Old Testament that look forward to the Christ who would come. Nehemiah chapter 5, page 489. And then we'll read some verses from Nehemiah chapter 8. We read this by way of background to uh, the second half of Nehemiah chapter 8. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Page 489. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, We, our sons and daughters, are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Get back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you're charging them, the hundredth part of it, of the money, grain, new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And then we move down to read of Nehemiah's example, verse 16, and how he had conducted himself. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, a hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, 
because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O my God, for all that I have done for these people. Now that incident happened as Nehemiah and the people were rebuilding the wall over that two-month period. And now, at the end of the two-month period, we want to read Ezra, or sorry, Nehemiah chapter 8. <clears throat> and we begin our reading at verse 9. They've been instructing Ezra, and the um, Levites have been instructing the people. There's a change of heart and mind taking place, a reformation that's following, and we want to read of that now. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make booze as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booze on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day the Israelites had not celebrated the feast like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Then finally we return to the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, page 1179. If you're using the church Bible, page 1179, Philippians chapter 2. And the New Testament looks back to the Christ who has come. And we read chapter 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. 7 to 10, our theme is Rebuilding God's People. And these chapters record events that all happen in the same month, the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. That was the religious calendar. The civic calendar ran differently, and the seventh month of the religious calendar was actually the first month of the civic calendar. Kidner calls this month the crown of the year. For in this month, there are three great religious festivals that take place. The Feast of Trumpets on the first day, when the people rejoice in New Year. The Day of Atonement on the tenth day, when they humble themselves individually and as families in the light of their ongoing sin. And on the 15th day, the Feast of Tabernacles, when they celebrate 
uh, the end of the harvest and also when they commemorate their wilderness journeys uh, after the exodus. But this year, as we see here from these chapters, their observance of these feasts is different. Very different from what it has been for hundreds of years. Now it is no longer mechanical going through the routine because we're expected to or asked to. It's not formal or rigid. It's not a perfunctory ritual, but a life-transforming experience. As the Word of God humbles the people uh, during the month, as it's ministered by Ezra and others, this ministry of the Word leads to renewed worship of God, a new confession of their sin, and a determined reformation of their lives. We thought already about word-produced worship, word-produced confession, and now this morning our theme is word-produced change or reformation. Because that's what reformation means. It means to change outwardly, to change our actions, our behaviour. And we want to note two changes in their conduct, as recorded here in Nehemiah chapter 8, from verse 9 through to the end of the chapter. Uh, And for our first point, uh, we will be uh, dipping back into Nehemiah chapter 5. And for our second point, The background is Leviticus chapter 23. So if you want to uh, look wider, uh, more widely at those uh, afterwards or during the week, then you have the appropriate passages. The first change that we see here in terms of their conduct is a reformation in their relationships with each other. Reformation in their relationships with each other. The civic new year, the Feast of Trumpets, took place on the first of the month. It was a day to celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness in the past year and to seek God's mercy for the year which lies ahead. So how do you celebrate when you're happy? How do we celebrate when there is a wedding or when it comes to Christmas? Well, we celebrate now as they celebrated then by having a slap-up meal. Enjoying the best food and drink. Chapter 8, verse 10. Uh, We read uh, the instruction, Go your way. Eat the fat, eat the best, drink the sweet, drink the best you have. So they are to go and they are to celebrate, they are to rejoice. They're to rejoice in God's grace to them, God's salvation for them in the Christ who would come. That he has brought them 
uh, to renewed worship. He's brought them to renewed awareness of their sin. Uh, and now um, their sorrow and mourning over sin must turn into gladness and joy because of their forgiveness in Christ. And that is very, very important. Some of us, uh, we tend to be of the spirit or the temperament that when our sins are set before us, uh, it is always and only, woe is me. Uh, We're like that character in Winnie the Pooh that's uh, always lamenting himself. But sorrow and mourning over sin must turn into gladness and joy the forgiveness of God in Christ. Because God, when he shows us our sin, doesn't leave us in our sin, but rather brings us to confess it and he forgives it for the sake of Christ, the Christ who lived a life without sin and who died for the forgiveness of our sins. That being so, This New Year celebration takes place, however, against the backdrop of a previous year that has been very demanding and very difficult for the people, for families, for individuals, and they've had added to that the responsibility of rebuilding the wall during the past year. And so when you go back to Nehemiah chapter 5, you'll see that this past year has been a year of sacrifice. Chapter 5 verse 2, as they rebuilt the wall. It's been a year of famine. Chapter 5 verse 3. There have been people who haven't had enough to eat. It's been a year of heavy taxation by the Persians. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 5 Verses 4 and 5. But then saddest of all. It has been a year that certainly began. And uh, through a major part uh, of its course. Was marked by widespread ongoing oppression. By the rich within Israel. Within the church of the poor. So it's been a very difficult year for them. And a year when the strong and powerful among the Jews have taken advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. Chapter 5, verses 5 to 7. And Nehemiah, as he became aware of that, had had to deal with that. And he had commanded the rich and the powerful. Uh, They were not to charge interest um, anymore. They could lend money, but they didn't get any return on it. They weren't to sell the poor among them as slaves if the poor could not repay the money that had been lent to them. And so that change has been taking place in their relationships. Some of the wrongs have been removed and dealt with. But now there's a further change. 
that is being pressed upon them in their relationships. And it's here in chapter uh, 8 and verse 10. Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet. Not full stop. But and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. In other words, don't just think of yourselves. Think of your brethren. It's not just about celebrating yourselves, but enable them to be joyful. Enable them to celebrate. Enable them to join in and be part of what is happening. In chapter 5, it was a call to refrain from doing evil. Now it is a call to do good. It's a call to be kind to the needy and those who don't have much. The disadvantaged, the weaker, the poor among them. A change in relationship with each other. And so this ministry of the word by Ezra and um, the scribes, out of it comes this call for a change in the relationships. And look at verse 12. We read, And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly. They followed through. It reminds me a little bit of what Paul writes in Corinthians to the church about their church meeting. And they gather for worship and they're going to have the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper then happened in the context of a larger meal. But there are those who have plenty and they're powerful and they're rich and they go ahead. And they eat and they're satisfied. And then the weak and the Those without any influence and the needy and um, the slaves probably. They were left behind and left out. And Paul said, it's not good that you do this. And he challenged them and he called for change. So, and it's a change not just in habit. It's a change not just in action, but it's a change in relationship. It's a change in their attitudes towards each other. And so this reformation in relationships that has been going on for a little time now, during the building of the wall, it now reaches its high point as they send portions uh, to those who have nothing prepared so that they can rejoice greatly. Word produced change. A change in relationships with each other. What is the state of our congregational relationships this morning? Is all well? Could the Lord say to us, Nehemiah chapter 5, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God? 
in any congregation today of the Lord's people, the dynamic of the makeup shouldn't and won't be any different. There'll be those who have and those who don't have as much. There'll be those who are strong and those who are weak. And we need to ask ourselves, is there any danger of the strong in faith? The strong in personality? The strong in gift? Taking advantage of the weak in our midst so that they are left out? That they are left to the side or left behind? Made to feel as if they don't belong? Do our attitudes and our words and our actions favor some before or above others? All who are in Christ are equally important to him. He doesn't make those kind of distinctions. And they are to be equally important in a congregation. Are we ever in danger of treating the members of Christ on the basis of the surname they have? On the basis of the job they do in life? On the basis of their personality type? Or what they have materially? Or the gifts they possess? Or their ability to contribute to congregational life. A change in the relationships with each other. Paul writes about this to the church in Philippi. The passage we read earlier. It's a church that Paul loves. And he has a very close relationship with. And he has great joy in the way in which they are serving Christ. But there seems to be a little something there in the background that concerns him just about relationships. Comes out in Philippians chapter 2. Comes out again. I think it's in Philippians chapter 4 as he talks about... um, Yes, Philippians chapter 4, as he urges certain members to to get along together. And here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Be like-minded. Be like-minded. Have the same love. Be of one accord, of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything to promote yourself, Paul says. In lowliness of mind. In other words, have a low estimate of yourself. Count others better than yourself. Each looking not for his own interests, not what will serve me, but rather for the interests of others. And then to impress that those principles upon their relationships, what does Paul do? He brings in the example of Christ. And he says this is what Christ was. Christ had an equality with God. But he became the servant. And so Paul is saying you are all equal in Christ. But you are not to lord it over the other. You are rather to serve the other. 
taking, humbling ourselves. Yes, even to the point of being willing to die for each other. That's what Christ did. And so our relationships with each other is to be patterned on Christ's relationship with us. What he did for us. And if Christ had thought about himself, he never would have left heaven. He never would have become a servant. He never would have had the pain of the cross. And if we're going to be like him, we're going to have to bear the cross. And we're going to have to humble ourselves. Yes, for the sake of one another. And you see, it's in that then that exaltation comes. Because it's exaltation then that Christ does. That he himself has at the hands and by the hand of the Father. Therefore God exalted him. And the point that Paul is implying to the Corinthians is, or to the Philippians is God will exalt you. And so a change in their relationships with each other. It's what Nehemiah and Ezra want to see. It's what Paul wants to see in the church at Philippi. It's a lovely chapter in the Confession of Faith. I think it's chapter 26. And it talks about the communion of the saints. The communion of brethren. And it talks about joined to Christ or united to Christ Jesus by faith. United to one another in love. We're not united to one another in faith because we don't trust in each other. We don't believe in each other. We believe in Christ. But we are united in to one another in love. United to Jesus Christ by faith. United to one another in love. Faith works by love. We have communion the confession says, in each other's gifts and graces. So it's communion, not dominion of the saints. Communion, not dominion of the saints. But let's notice then, secondly, this morning, the other change. A change in their attitude to this world or to this life. And this change centers around the Feast of Tabernacles. This annual feast commemorates the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And you remember those were years when they had nothing themselves. And they depended on the Lord for everything. For the quail, for the manna that they had to gather six days a week. They depended on the Lord for water. They depended on the Lord for protection from the fiery snakes that inhabited the wilderness and could otherwise have poisoned them. They depended on the Lord so that their clothes did not wear out. And as Deuteronomy 8 puts it, their feet did not swell with the constant uh, pilgrimage and walking. So that's what those 40 years were all about. 
And this feast commemorates that period. And the Lord required them after they moved into Canaan, into their houses, which they did not build, and all the other things that came from that land that was flowing with milk and honey, the Lord required them then in this feast annually to do what? To live as if they were in the wilderness for a period of seven days. And so they were to build these booths, tents, not of canvas, but of tree branches. The nearest parallel I could think of this for us would be like us having a Sabbath every year when we move out of 48 and we move back up to Oakfield to remind ourselves of the 12 years there when we had nothing secure. But why do this year after year? Why is it important that we remember, if not physically, then um, mentally, um, our past? Well, it is to remind them and to remind us they are pilgrims. They are pilgrims. They're not to be like the nations around them. And that was the great mistake that they made when they settled in Canaan. They became like the nations around them. But they need to remember they are pilgrims. They need to remember they have no continuing city here. They need to remember to live lightly to the material and to the temporal. The things that are not relevant in eternity. And of no help in eternity. And now what happens is that on the second day, the heads of the families, the fathers, gather together under Ezra. And Ezra preaches. And because it is the seventh month, he's preaching through the first five books of the Old Testament. And actually they read those once every seven years in their entirety at this feast. And so Ezra reads back in this passage. He says, the next feast is going to be tabernacles. Let's hear what the Lord says to us. Let's hear what the Lord requires of us. And so they discover, they realize, we are not observing this feast as the Lord requires us. Indeed, since Joshua's day, that's a period of 950 years. For 950 years, they have lost sight of increasingly, not overnight, but increasingly, little by little, year by year, they've lost sight of the pilgrim spirit and lifestyle that is to mark them. And now, here's where the Reformation happens. Verse 17. The whole congregation made booths and sat under the booths 
and there was very great gladness. Do you notice the gladness? There's gladness, there's joy in obedience. There's no joy in disobedience. You know that, don't you? The time when you were not a Christian and you went your own way and you did your own thing, were you happy? Were you joyful? Was there gladness? No, there wasn't. Well, there may have been a bit like when you shake a bottle of juice, you get a bit of fizz for a time, but it doesn't last. But you see, when we walk in the paths of obedience, the paths of righteousness for Christ's name's sake, then there is joy. There is gladness. A gladness that the world cannot take away. And that even the most severe difficulties that come into our lives, including death, cannot take away. And so there is this renewed observance of the feast as the Lord had revealed and commanded them. And it results in very great gladness. Don't ever believe the lie of the devil that to be a Christian is to be a killjoy. To be a Christian is gladness. Very great gladness. And if we don't know that as a Christian, then there's something wrong with how we're approaching and understanding the Christian faith and the Christian life. So we have a change in their attitude to the world, to this world, to this life. And you see again, This is patterned on the life and example of our Saviour. He was a pilgrim. He was the ultimate pilgrim. Leaving heaven. Coming to this earth. Taking a human body. Living for 30 plus years in a human body experiencing all the temptation and trials that come from living in this fallen world, not sinning once in thought, in word, or in deed. What a pilgrim (coughs) was our Saviour, always about the Father's will, the Father delighting in him, Saying again and again, with you I am well pleased. Why? Because he was a pilgrim. And he called men and women to be pilgrims. To leave as a first priority the things that are material and temporal. And to have as first priority him and his kingdom. And so they left Peter, James and Andrew and John. They left their fishing boats. They left all to follow him. Now that was particular and special to them that they should leave all. But for all of us, we may not be called to leave all, but we are called to have 
Him of first importance. Not our work, not our families, not our homes, not our friends, not our leisure pursuits, not anything else. He is to be of first importance. Because he is our great saviour who sacrificed himself for our sins. How could we ever give him any less back than everything that I am and I have? We're to offer up, as Paul says, our whole selves as living sacrifices. We're here, Lord, for you to do your will. Whatever that is and whatever that takes. And so you and I, we are pilgrims. You must not become too settled in a job, too attached to a house, too comfortable in a lifestyle. You must not be a slave to material things, for you are a pilgrim. And Christ may ask you, To do something more for him. He has saved you out of the world. He has saved you to serve him. Not this world. Your food is to do the will of him who saved you. Even as his food was to do the will of him who sent him. You're to lay up treasure in heaven and to seek first his kingdom. Are we doing that? Or do we need a change in our attitude to this world, to this life, to the material and the temporal? Do we retain the heart of the pilgrim is that as strong in you today as it was when you first became a Christian and the mind of a pilgrim and the will of a pilgrim and as those who've joined as, as those who've come together to form this congregation do we retain that heart and mind and will of pilgrims Are we as committed and as zealous for the worship and life and witness of the congregation as 13 years ago or as when you first were converted? Are we as generous with our time? Are we as generous in spirit towards one another? Are we as generous with our money? Are you as generous in your service? Are we as faithful and expectant in our prayers? Are we willing to spend ourselves 
on behalf of the lost in our community as much as we were 13 years ago? Do we need a change in attitude to the world and this life? There's a real danger that we could fall into, a trap we could fall into, now that we're settled. That like Israel, we just settle down, we become a nice, we reform Presbyterian congregation. And we just look after ourselves. And they're shown here. And we're shown. We're not to do that. We're called to be pilgrims. So, Ezra's reading and preaching of the word, it produced change. Now at this point, reformation of life. And the word is to produce change, reformation of life in you and me. James put it like this in James chapter 1. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if we're hearers only, we're deceiving ourselves. We're not really in the kingdom. We're not really pilgrims. If the hearing is not transferred into doing what the Lord wants of us. And we can do these things not in our own strength, but we can do these things because we're joined to Christ who gives us strength, who enables us to love one another and serve one another. And who enables us to serve his kingdom, his gospel, his name, first and foremost in the world. So conscious of our weakness, our sins, our failures. Let's not be like that character in Winnie the Pooh, his name I forget, is Dior. And... And always looking at ourselves, seeing ourselves, let's look upward to him who changes by grace through faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, We come before you now in prayer. We come seeking your grace. Grace that will enable us to see where we fall short of your glory. Where we fail you in our relationships with one another. And where we sin against one another. And where, O Lord, we fail to cultivate the spirit of Christ The spirit of being a servant, not being Lord. We pray that you would give us that mind of Christ and that we would 
have it cultivated in us, that we would work out, work it out in our lives with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us. We pray too that you would help us not to lose sight of the great reality that we're pilgrims. This world is not our home. We are passing through. And only what is done for Christ will last. And so help us not to lay up treasure for ourselves on earth, but to lay up treasure in heaven. Help us to be those who are about the Father's business. Was it not a remarkable statement that came from our Saviour's lips at 12 years of age? Did you not know I must be about my Father's business? Lord, forgive us where we are too much about the business of this world and the business of the world, of the unbelieving world around us that lives as if there's only money and food and drink and clothing and the material that neglects the spiritual. Lord, help us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so today we pray for the work of your Spirit. Forgive us our sin as a people, we do pray you. Forgive us, O Lord, where our zeal has flagged. Forgive us where we are in danger of just uh, becoming routine and mundane in our walk with you and in our life and witness and worship as the church. Lord, stir us up and and change us and enable us to change by your grace and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.